Well, good afternoon. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy this day. I'm a dad. I've got a 28-year-old son and a 25-year-old daughter. Uh, you know, I got married when I was 12. You know, we just started things early. <laughs> uh, now, you know, you know, one of the things I've noticed about my kids, I think it's wired within, within each of us, is that we, we all have this desire, this desire to matter, this, this instinct to want to make this world a better place, this, this longing to, to, to make a difference in this world. Because, you know, everybody can't change the world, but everybody can change the world for somebody. And that's what this series is about. You exist for a reason. God has a plan for your life and you can live it. And God placed you in this world to make a contribution. You are not here simply to consume, you know, to eat, to drink, to breathe. It's fine that you do all of that, but you're not here just to take. You are here to give away. You're here to add to life. And you can uniquely make this world a better place. I want you to know, I hope to inspire you to believe that you can uniquely make a difference. No matter what anybody else has said to you, no matter what that ongoing negative joy-sucking narrative might be telling you, you do matter, you can make a difference, and you can uniquely make this world a better place. And you do that by living your purpose. So this summer we're studying the first century letter that's included in the Christian scriptures called Philippians. And as I've said, it's written by the uh, uh, Apostle Paul. And as he wrote this letter, he was literally in, in prison, in chains for his faith. But he was writing to believers, telling them how they could feel joy no matter what. And he said that he felt joy even though he was in prison. He felt joy because he was living his purpose. And purpose is the unexpected uh, path to joy. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. Purpose is the unexpected path to joy. Purpose gives you a sense of meaning in life. It stirs a passion for life. It gives you a sense of direction and destiny for life. And my hope in this series is to inspire you to, uh, to experience joy as you live your purpose. Because there's a difference between having fun and feeling joy. There's a difference between merely surviving and truly thriving. There's a difference between making a living and making a life. And I'm calling on you. I'm, I'm hopefully inspiring you to make a life. And you make a life by living your purpose. And so today, we're going to talk about how living your purpose requires a certain perspective, a certain way of viewing yourself and viewing others. And so as I prepared for this message, I looked up in the dictionary the definition of purpose. And this is what I found. Purpose, it said is the reason for which something exists or gets accomplished. Okay, so you got that purpose is the reason for which something exists or gets accomplished. In other words, purpose is about being a means to an end. Purpose is not the end itself. It's a means to an end. So let me see if I can give you some, some examples of this. So like take a hammer. What's the purpose of a hammer? To drive nails. It's a means to an end. What's the purpose of a car? The purpose of a car is to move us from here to there. It's a means to an end. 
Or you think of the purpose of shoes to cover our feet or a coat to keep us warm or a mosquito. What's the purpose of a mosquito? No, really. What's the purpose of a mosquito? Lord. Okay, bad example. Purpose, though, is, a, is about being a means to an end. And that's where we can have a struggle. Because most of us, if we're honest, we struggle with being a means to an end. We, we prefer to be the end. And even sometimes when we pursue purpose, we're thinking about wanting to feel significant or wanting to feel good about ourselves. And, and don't get me wrong, I hope you feel significant. I hope you feel good about yourself. But that's not the end of purpose. Purpose is about being a means to an end. And here's why this is important. Because if you live with purpose, it will call you to live for something greater than yourself that is, that is not about yourself. And that decision, it will lead you to make decisions in life that will ultimately cost you. And that's the price of living with purpose. It will lead you to make decisions that will ultimately cost you. And that's where we feel the tension and the friction. But I've found that those who avoid paying the price very seldom live with purpose. And so today I want us to look at a key virtue that becomes the driving factor to encourage us and motivate us to want to pay the price of living with purpose. Okay, so this is uh, Philippians chapter 2. And what I want to do is I want to read this, these verses. They're, they're pretty lengthy, but then I'll, I'll go back and unpack uh, what this virtue is all about. So this is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, interesting words, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So the, the key virtue that he's surfacing here is humility. And I think humility is an oft-misunderstood uh, attitude or characteristic. Uh, and so I want to make sure we understand what humility means and what it does not mean. Uh, and can we pause for a moment? Uh, do y'all hear like an alarm going off? Do what? You're trying to turn it off now? Oh, okay. All right. All right. Okay. Back to humility. Lord, I humble myself. Okay. Back to humility. Let's talk about humi what humility is and what it is not. Humility is not like being a doormat. Humility is not about letting people walk all over you. Humility is not about just being quiet and being invisible in life. Humility is, is not about, um, it's not about thinking lowly of yourself. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm just so terrible. No, in fact, that's the opposite of humility. To be humble, truly humble, you have to really understand who you really are. Humility is not about thinking less about yourself. And so I, I love the way uh, author C.S. Lewis puts it. In fact, it's so good, I just, I just had to quote it for you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. A humble person does not think less of himself. He thinks of himself less. 
It's a good pithy way to view it. And so here's the definition of humility. I got this from a book. The entire book is written about humility and the, the history behind humility. Humility is the decision. So humility is a choice. Humility is the decision to disregard your status, your rights, and by using your power and influence to serve others instead of yourself. So let me read that again. That's, it's a rich statement. Humility is the decision to disregard your status and rights by using your power, your influence, to serve others instead of yourself. And in this passage, Paul is suggesting that humility is the key to everything when it comes to living your purpose. So did you notice Paul talked about having a tenderness of heart and a compassion? You know what he was speaking about? He was speaking about people who, are, who can empathize with others. So you're not just focused on how you feel about your life. You, be, you get to the point where you can actually feel what other people feel. And did you notice he talked about not being focused on selfish, selfish ambition and vain conceit? So it's not about you. He talked about being focused on others, not just looking after your own interests, but think about this, actually in, initiating, showing interest on behalf of others, and that's humility. And humility is what uh, leads us to serve a cause that's greater than us that is not about ourselves. So humility is about, about getting the focus off of ourselves and onto others. And so on this Father's Day, I was thinking about, you know, one of our purposes as fathers, one of our purposes as, as parents for the moms here, is to help our children not be self-focused, but be others-focused. Because can we just admit it, when, when, when babies come out of the womb, they are focused on self. And it's just the way we're wired. I was that way too. My mom told me I was terrible until I was three. And so, you know, when we come out, we're focused on ourselves. We have a self-orientation. And, and it's all about what we want. And so when a baby wants something, what does a baby do? It cries. And so I want to eat. I, I want to sleep. I don't want to sleep. I want to chew on the remote. I want this poopy diaper off me. Okay. And then those little precious sweet babies, they get to where they can toddle around. And they become terrible. We call them the terrible twos. Right? And what are some of their favorite words? No, no, mine, me, mine, mine, mine. We have a whole movie that made fun of it, right? And it's all about a self-focus. And one of our roles as parents is to help our children become less self-absorbed and self-focused and to begin to be able to focus on others. We, we want to help them grow in humility. And Paul asserts that humility flows from a mindset. In verse 2, he talks about being like-minded and having one mind. He's talking about the way you think. So humility flows from a way of thinking. And since we all start off being more self-absorbed and self-focused, it means that somewhere along the way, humble people learn how to think in other ways about themselves and about others. And so as I was preparing for this message, uh, I, I read through some studies, and some of these studies found, interestingly enough, that many great leaders actually are very humble people. And one of the very humble people I read about uh, is one of our former presidents, President Abraham Lincoln. And some historians, political historians, believe he was perhaps our greatest president ever. So think about that. The greatest president ever in the history of the United States. But I want you to notice a certain way he thought about himself. So one day, uh, uh, President Lincoln was in the White House 
polishing his boots. And a cabinet member who was there in the White House noticed him polishing his boots and walked up to the president and said with sarcasm, why is the president of the United States polishing his own boots? To which Lincoln replied, well, just whose boots do you expect me to polish? (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Who thinks like that? A humble person. Nothing was beneath President Lincoln. And I think that caused him to live with greatness and a sense of destiny. Because he wasn't there about himself. He was there for others. And, And when I just told you that story, we, as a culture, we tend to value humility, right? We think that's a positive attribute. But I I need you to understand, it's so hard to help people understand that in the first century when Paul wrote these words calling on people to to, uh, embrace humility, it was counterintuitive, it was countercultural, it was shocking to them because in the first century, people viewed humility as a negative trait. It was a vice. If you were humble, it was a sign of weakness that strong people could take advantage of. So nobody sought to be humble. And so as I was trying to wrestle with how to help you understand what people felt about humility in the first century, I thought about the, the, the twist in the word humiliated. They, you know, if I say someone humiliated me, you would know that was a bad thing. Well, in the first century, if I said I humbled myself, they would view it as just as bad of an of a, of a expression, right? To be humiliated, to be humbled, same thing. It was a bad thing. It was a negative trait in their day. And you have to understand, the whole Roman society was organized against people wanting to be humble because they had very uh, clear identified levels and statuses and privileges that went with those levels of power and privilege and status. So I was trying to think of how I could help you understand what it felt like to live in the first century Roman Empire, and I think I got it. So it's sort of like the way our airlines organize getting on a plane with the statuses and all the levels and stuff. So so let me unpack this. So for for example, the very first people to get on the plane is first class. In first class, you're at the gate and there's two gates. They have to have two gates to go into one little opening. And one gate is only for first class. And it's got red carpet. Everybody else has to walk through the other gate right beside it on tile. And then the first class, they get on the plane first. And they get, in, 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 get to sit in the front by the, the pilot. And they get to sit in ginormous chairs. And they're served hot food, real food, while everybody else is walking through. And they're eating on fine china with silverware. And they're drinking free champagne out of crystal. And they're pretentiously clinging their glasses. While the rest of us are huddled down into coach, jammed into seats, and we all shared poor drinks out of boxes and teeny weeny plastic cups. But I'm not better. <laughs> you know, it's like airlines have basically recreated my middle school society all over again. And, okay, if it was just first class and coach, okay, got it. But those of you who fly, you know that's not where it start, stops. Who's the next to get on the plane? Platinum level, then they get on the plane. 
Then there's the diamond level. Then there's the gold level. Then there's the silver level. And then if you, you think, okay, it's finally over. Oh, no. Then they'll divide up the rest of coach into five zones, five more zones. And if you're in zone five, which I'm cheap, so I often am, <laughs> you get on the plane last. There's no overhead storage. You end up in a middle seat and you end up in a seat where the, where the seat doesn't recline all the way and the tray is crooked and the entertainment center doesn't work, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> okay, do you, do you got to feel the difference between first class and zone five? Okay, now imagine an entire society that is actually organized like the airplane. At the top, there were 600 senators and their families. They had all the privilege and all the power. They did whatever they wanted. The next level, they were called equestrians. They were basically the uber wealthy. A lot of power. The next level were called the decurians. They were the powerful government officials. Each level, different statuses, different power. Next level were called citizens. They had some rights. The next level was called freedmen. They had minimal rights. And then at the very bottom, zone five, servants and slaves. So you got it? And in the Roman world, nobody valued humility. In fact, whatever level you were, you used your status and your power to humiliate the people beneath you. So why was Paul encouraging people in that Roman world to embrace humility? It sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? And when did, when did a despised vice become an esteemed virtue? Oh, this is so interesting. Okay. So, I'm going to show you when. When humility went from being something bad all throughout ancient history to something good. So, a team of researchers in the Department of Ancient History at a university in Australia spent years pouring over evidence from ancient documents trying to figure out when did humility go from being a negative attribute to a positive one. And after years of research... This team at a public university determined that the pivotal moment in human history regarding humility was Jesus. Dr. John Dixon, who participated in that study, wrote, The conclusion was clear. The modern Western fondness for humility almost certainly derives from the peculiar impact on Europe by Jesus. This is not a religious conclusion, but a historical finding. Today, it doesn't matter what your religious views are. Christian, atheist, Jedi Knight. If you were raised in the West, you are likely to think that honor-seeking is morally questionable and lowering yourself for the good of others is ethically beautiful. That is the influence of a story about greatness that willingly went to a cross. Jesus changed everything. It is one of the reasons we worship him here. And Jesus said this, the one who wants to be great must become the servant of all, zone five. And whoever wants to be first must become a slave. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, when he was on the earth, he redefined greatness. 
Think about this. Jesus made humility great. He made it a prized characteristic to pursue. And the Apostle Paul, now in his letter, points our direction to Jesus as our example of being humble. This is verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not think equality with God. That's his status. That's his position. He's God. He did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus changed everything. He took humility from a despised vice and made it an esteemed virtue. And Paul calls us to have the same mindset. In other words, to think about ourselves and others the same way Jesus did. And if you notice what he said, a humble person, they, think they take all of their privileges, all of their power, everything, their status, they don't cling to it. They let it go on behalf of others. That's why Jesus is our example. So I'm going to pull together the three virtues we've looked at these first three weeks so you can see how they tie together and help us uh, in our pursuit of a purpose. So if you remember in week one, we talked about love being a, the, it's like the fuel behind purpose because love motivates us to seek what is best for others, not ourselves. Love motivates us to want to give rather than to take. Love positions us in the right way to think about ourselves and others. Then last week, we, we looked at the virtue of courage. And we've said that courage is not the absence of fear. In fact, you don't need courage if you don't feel fear. I mean, that's sort of the point. Courage instead is the confidence and boldness to face risks and overcome your fears in pursuit of purpose. And if you remember, we said we get courage not from our own strengths, but knowing who is with us. When you know Jesus is with you, the one who can walk on water, the one who can still storms, the one who can raise the dead, when he is with you, no risk seems too big and no fear seems insurmountable. And then this third virtue is humility. Humility is what gets our focus on others, on serving others with all that we have, all of our strengths, all of our abilities. Now, I say all of that to say I'm I'm coming to a point that's so important on this Father's Day. I am concerned that there is a shrinking influence in our society on Jesus' view of humility as being a prized characteristic to pursue and to seek in life. Now, let me see if I can explain why I said that. Uh, This week, an article caught my attention. It's in Psychology Today, and the article's title is, Why Is Narcissism Rising in America? Very interesting. In it, psychologist and Boston College professor Dr. David Gray refers to multiple studies conducted over the past three decades that all show the same alarming trend. This is what he said. Over 70% of people today are more narcissistic than the previous generations. It's an alarming rate. And Dr. Gray defines narcissism as an inflated view of self coupled with relative indifference towards others. 
And he wrote that people with high narcissistic traits, they struggle to empathize with others. And they don't tend to help others unless there's some win in it for them, right? Now, we see the examples of narcissism expressed in all kinds of ways in our culture. This is pro probably not shocking to you. Sometimes, you know, very clear ways, sometimes very quirky ways. And so I'm going to pick like a quirky way because I'm a quirky guy. And so I just, I just wanted to, to highlight a, a little bit of what I've learned about the, the trend of, of posting selfies. Posting selfies. So according to HQ Press, about 93 million selfies are posted every day. There is a selfie posted every second on Instagram. And I found that between 2011 and 2017, 259 people died trying to get an extreme selfie. Y'all think about it. People are dying trying to get a selfie that enough people will click like on to make them feel good about themselves. And there's nothing wrong with selfies. I know some of you post selfies. It's okay. But what, what I'm concerned is that when, when you're focused on yourself and you're wanting people to look at you, I think it sets a different mindset. I don't think it sets you up to live your purpose. And what's interesting is that Dr. Gray added that those who have higher narcissistic traits, get this, tend to be unhappy, angry, and depressed. Those with higher narcissism tend to get what they don't want. They end up unhappy, angry, and depressed. And that's why I said to you that purpose is the unexpected path to joy. Because most people who, who think, most people, most of us think our, the path to joy is about focusing on what I want and myself. But what if, what if God has wired us all to experience joy, not when we're pursuing what we want, but when we give away our power, our status, status our privilege, our abilities, our gifts in service of others? What if that's the way God has wired us? I believe if we will pursue the path of humility, we will live with purpose and we will feel joy no matter what. And so on this Father's Day, I have a challenge to the fathers, to all the dads out there. I, I want to talk to you dads about how to help our children and our grandchildren to grow in humility. Because I've seen a mistaken strategy that I want to address. Because sometimes I think dads and granddads think that the way you help your kids grow in humility is by humiliating them. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's a bad strategy because when you humiliate your kids, you're not going to raise humble kids. You're more likely to raise narcissistic kids. The way you help your children and grandchildren grow in humility is by you humbling yourselves to them. It's by you taking your position, your status, whatever power you have, and using it to, to look after their interests. When you put them ahead of you, you teach them how to be humble. You teach your children how to be humble by serving them, not by expecting them to serve you. And so I'm calling on the fathers uh, watching, all those listening, all those in the video cafe. I'm calling you to serve your children and help us create a movement, a, a movement that will raise up kids who are humble and selfless. I'm calling you to serve your kids by giving your kids grace when they mess up so that they know that they are loved unconditionally. I'm calling you to serve your kids by treating your kids like they matter to God and like they matter to you, so that they will feel valued. 
I'm calling on you to serve your kids by speaking positive words of encouragement to them so that they feel affirmed and edified. I'm calling you to serve your kids by helping your kids with their chores. When, they, when you know they want to go to their friend's house and it's their chores, but you decide to help them just because you love them and because you want to serve them, even though it costs you. I'm calling on you to serve your kids by maybe getting a second job to help them pay their way through college, even if it costs you. I'm calling on you to rearrange your life, to show up at important events to your child, even if it costs you. And above all, I'm calling you to serve your children and your grandchildren by humbly asking forgiveness when you mess up. If you do that, yeah. <clears throat> Dads, if, if, if we take this posture and seek to use our power, our position to serve our children and grandchildren, we will raise up a generation of children who are selfless and humble and tender and compassionate and looking for ways to serve others. Folks, that's how you change the world. In City Church, imagine what we could accomplish in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, in our cities. If we would be fueled by love, if we would rise up with courage, and if we would kneel in humility and look for ways to serve people in our society, talk, talk about you will, we would make this world a better place. And it doesn't come by you getting what you want. It comes by you giving away. And when we all do that, everyone wins. Let's pray together. So Lord, I think, first of all, I, I want to say to you, thank you for not clinging to your privilege and your position as the son of God, but taking your position and your power and giving it away in service of us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in love and courage and humility as we seek to orchestrate our lives to serve others the way you have served us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Well, I hope, uh, I hope this, you know, I, I hope this series is, is giving you a new vision for living a purposeful life. Uh, I'm gonna be unpacking this a little bit on Tuesday nights at community night. I'm gonna be there live. I'm gonna do like Q&A kind of thing if you wanna join us at seven. Uh, as always, the prayer team would be available. Hey, can you give me just, just one minute? Just please give me one minute. Uh, our prayer team is going to be available in the front. Uh, I do want to speak a word to those of you who call City Church your church. Uh, I just want to thank you for giving to the City Church movement. And I want to let you know that you're making a difference. If you weren't here last week, we had the opportunity to celebrate with 57 people who professed their faith in Jesus through the powerful picture of baptism. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. And that makes 185 people so far this year who have professed their faith in Jesus. And so know that you're giving. It's making a difference. And then again, if you weren't here last week, we, we announced the results of our food drive. Our goal was to get 400,000 meals. Well, we got 538,238 meals. Yeah. That's over a half million meals. And I'm just saying to you, when you give here, lives change here. And I, I just feel so humbled to be your pastor 
and to lead such a generous group of people. And so I was praying about just how to affirm what God is stirring in your heart. And I feel like he gave, gave me a word to, to speak over you. It's, a, it's the blessing side of generosity. And it comes from one of Paul's letters. And so I'm going to speak this blessing to you uh, as we conclude the service. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul writes, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here's the blessing. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And so, Lord, I, I stand on that promise and I ask that you would bless us as we give generously. I pray that you would bless us abundantly so that in all things at all times, we would abound in every good work as we live with purpose and give with purpose. God bless you. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.